Hi, this is Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, here with a Slate spoiler special podcast on Inherent Vice, Paul Thomas Anderson's adaptation of the Thomas Pynchon novel of the same name. And joining me in the new Slate Studio B, which is this exciting foam box built for uh, to accommodate Slate's growing podcast list, is Aisha Harris, a culture blogger for Slate. Hi, Aisha. Hi, Dana. And Chris Wade, our video producer, audio producer, the man running the board. Hi, Chris. <laughs> Hi, Dana. So Inherent Vice is a very shaggy movie that's an adaptation of a very shaggy novel. And uh, I know, Aisha, you've read the book. I'm in the middle. I'm about three quarters of the way through the book. I had one of those moments where I was racing to finish it before the movie screening. I didn't quite get to it. Chris, you have not read the book. I have correct? not. I wanted to talk about it as an adaptation and see whether it's successful as one, but also just to talk about the particular kind of vibe the movie is going for, which is maybe something out of Robert Altman by way of, I don't know, what other director would you throw in there? Somebody who makes movies that are not about making sense. Uh Robert Altman by way of Cheech and Chong, (laughs) as I believe he described it. Well, it is a stoner comedy, right, Mm -hmm. which Robert Altman also specialized in making. And apparently Robert Altman's sets were just very liberally smoke-infused at all times. But this very much has that feeling of um, a a fiction that is about the impossibility of discovery, right? It's a kind of an epistemological detective novel that I think Paul Thomas Anderson made into an even more epistemologically confusing detective story on film. So essentially, this is a classic noir setup, right, with a a detective investigating a mystery. But the mystery seems to proliferate endlessly and introduce new characters and never necessarily resolve. So I want us to try to get into this incredibly convoluted plot and start spoiling it. But I think first, I want to just hear a quick thumbnail reaction from you guys. Did you did you like the movie? Were you disappointed? Were you pleased, entertained? Um, uh, I thought it was much more entertaining to watch than it was to read the book, uh, but it was just as confusing. Oh, I, I think I'm enjoying the book more. Although, um, Chris, what about you? This movie has, like every part of a movie that I would like, a mystery, a slack laid back stoner protagonist, uh, enough holes in it that you can form your own interpretation of it. Thematic resonance about what it means to either be a like square buy-in to culture or a uh, stoner dropout of culture. Uh, but yet it seems like it was less than the sum of its parts in a way that I found a little disappointing, though I still liked it. I think less than the sum of its parts very much sums up how I feel about this movie. But I also think I went into it with way too high expectations. I mean, I just am a huge PTA fan and was really excited that he was doing a, a pension adaptation. And I love when he does comedy, too. I mean, I, I think some people who are defending Inherent Vice, critics who liked it and are sort of wanting to um, to push back against people who felt disappointment, will say, oh, but he's doing a comedy. He's not always going to be doing one of these films like There Will Be Blood or The Master, something that's sort of a huge, ponderous contemplation of, of America. And that's not what I wanted from this movie. I wanted it to be, you know, a playful spinning out of control, many plates in the air, like a boogie nights kind of thing. And I just don't think that the story ever came together in that way, in spite of the the parts, many of the parts, including Joaquin Phoenix's central performance being just wonderful. They couldn't be any better. The cinematography, which is by Robert Ellswit, who actually won an Oscar for shooting There Will Be Blood, is incredible, right? I mean, it looks and sounds amazing. The soundtrack is fantastic. Music, yeah, And uh, there's some music cues I want to talk about later with you guys. But and, and the whole extended cast is really great. But somehow, this to me never felt like a movie that sort of needed to be, you know, except maybe in Paul Thomas Anderson's mind. Yeah, and I'm sure we'll talk about other Paul Thomas Anderson movies later. But in thinking about this and The Master, his last movie, which I really liked, and that movie also has a lot of narrative ambiguity into it and a lot of very impressionistic scenes and moments that are mostly just character moments or tonal moments, which this movie also has. 
Uh, but that film felt to me like more than the sum of its parts, like walking away from it, the conclusion of all the scenes together seemed to indicate a bigger truth. Even if you might not know exactly what that truth was supposed yeah. to be. Exactly. So, okay, so let's start to get into some of the uh, insane convolutions of the story of Inherent Vice. Chris, do you want to do the honors and we will jump in as needed? Yes. Okay. So we start with Joaquin Phoenix as Doc Sportello. He is a stoner private detective operating out of Gordita Beach. In the very first moment of the movie, Shasta, his ex-girlfriend, walks in and says she needs his help to foil a plan by her current boyfriend, her current boyfriend's actual wife and that wife's lover to uh, incarcerate her boyfriend, Mickey Wolfman, in a mental asylum so they can get at his money. So he starts investigating the disappearance of Mickey Wolfman on Shasta's request. Doc does, which leads him pretty immediately to a Chick Planet Massage. Yeah, Chick Planet Massage, which advertises their pussy eating special. Where he is jumped by an on-scene assailant and wakes up uh, bloody next to a dead body, the dead body of Glenn Sherlock, and is immediately arrested for potential murder by his old nemesis, Bigfoot, played by Josh Brolin. And we should say that Glenn Sherlock is a bodyguard or in some way in the employ of Mickey Wolfman. So the two stories are starting to knit together already. Yes. So he is arrested by Bigfoot, which is... Uh, the nickname of Detective Christian Bjornsson, played by Josh Brolin. Uh, Bigfoot and Doc have a history of being kind of mutually antagonistic as they both work separate sides of the law. Uh, Bigfoot is portrayed to be a total square... Brush cut. Brush cut, total G-man character who also potentially is operating on the seedier side of the LAPD. Uh, so Doc and Bigfoot start circling around this case, the disappearance of Mickey Wolfman together. Eventually, through investigating this case, uh, Doc is simultaneously asked, asked to investigate the disappearance of a jazz musician played by Owen Wilson named Coy Harlingen, who he eventually tracks down. And Coy tells him that he is an paid agent provocateur uh, who must remain secret and undercover to protect his family and his life even though he was suspected dead of an overdose. So at that point, we're about halfway through the movie. And what happens then is a large shift of plot focus, which I still don't entirely understand where the first plot goes. Doc runs into Mickey. They have a hilarious little scene of confrontation as Doc is now looking for Shasta, who's also missing, finds Mickey at the sanitarium, uh, who is, and Mickey is totally blissed out. But from there, through investigating... Uh, his framing for Glenn's murder, Doc is eventually put on the case of notorious and ruthless baseball bat-toting gangster Adrian Prussia. And they eventually get wrapped up together. And through investigating Adrian Prussia, he realizes that he has been sicked on Adrian Prussia by Bigfoot himself to avenge the killing of Bigfoot's partner, which had been executed by Adrian Prussia's goons because Adrian Prussia as a gangster is basically a hired assassin by the LAPD who can operate autonomously and without fear of arrest or trouble from the law so that they can carry he can carry out the LAPD's dirty work. Wow, you understood that plot so much better than I did. <laughs> but we haven't even gotten into Reese Witherspoon playing a deputy DA, right, who's yeah. Doc's current kind of booty call mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and her involvement with the case. Oh, yeah. There are a lot of little eddies 
uh, in between the main thrust of that thing. And again, my main difficulty in wrapping my head around the quote unquote what happens of this movie is the is like what what happens to the the Mickey Wolfman case in the second half of the movie where it totally becomes not about that and instead about this kind of double back cross between Bigfoot, Adrian Prussia, and Doc as kind of like a weapon, an independent weapon to get at. Yeah, you're right. There's, I, I, you're making me realize that there are essentially two streams running alongside through the entire movie. There's the case and all of the many tendrils, you know, that that case leads to, which eventually turns out to be part of this whole exposure of this cult called the Golden Fang that is sort of a combination of a money laundering operation and a brainwashing. I can't believe I got through that entire plot summary without mentioning the Golden Fang because if you played an Inherent Vice drinking game, it would be drink whenever they mention Golden Fang and you would be passed out by hour two. Right. And Golden Fang keeps sort of changing what it is, right? At one point, it's the name of this this boat that's that's harbored off offshore. Then we start to realize that it's also a, a drug cartel, a vertically integrated. How is it that Jade, yeah. the prostitute, describes it? Like a vertically integrated drug operation, yeah. essentially. Yeah. And also maybe some kind of weird philosophical uh, organization. Well, and here's where the critique the, of the, the counterculture starts to come in, yeah. right? And in the book, in the Pynchon book, and I don't think that PTA ever gets quite as explicit about this, um, the, the Golden Fang and that whole drug running operation is essentially the place where the square, you know, G-men come together with the counterculture because they're producing addicts, right? The idea of that place, the Chryskilladon Institute, where Mickey Wolfman has been interned and Owen Wilson spent some time there too, is that, you know, they, they get people addicted on drugs, drive them crazy, turn them into societal dropouts, and then send them to the Institute to get them better and then the whole thing sort of starts over again and they're both owned by the same people the golden fang owns the institute that helps the addicts and is also the organization pushing the drugs right and so something that is clearer in the book and i think in this conversation than it's ever actually made in the movie inherent vice is that you know this opposition of the counterculture and the establishment or whatever you want to see bigfoot bjornson is representing is in fact a false binary because it's all part of the same capitalist machine turning out profit yeah um one thing that i noticed uh that was very different from the book is that there's no sort of throughout the book pension layers on the movie has a lot of like Charles Manson references um, kind of like to signal like the end of an era, the end of like simpler times. Right. It's 1970, <clears throat> we should say. It's right. set in 1970. So it is literally like the end of the 60s. Right. 1970 in California, um, beach uh, surfer, surfer, what do you call them? Beach bums. beach bums, yeah, yep. beach bums, and and those types of folks, and um, that's like sprinkled throughout. Like Charles Manson, like looms very, very heavily over the book and the movie. But what I found interesting was the the way that that's pretty much most of it. And throughout the book, there's more mention of like the internet coming, um, new technology, there's other that, things. That whole plot about traditional neighborhoods being uprooted for. Like big new condos. Yeah, that's mentioned in the book, too. And I thought that was well, like the way that it was uh, shot by Anderson was like really well executed. Overall, I feel like Anderson did a good job, like a really good job of capturing the vibe. Completely. The mood and the ambience are incredible. Yeah, especially the 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 kind of um, face off between Doc and Bigfoot. Um Doc being, you know, upset with Bigfoot because Bigfoot is always hammering him about being a hippie and, and Doc gives it right back and is like, oh, you're uh, you're working for the establishment. Like especially that one scene where Anderson has them uh, ha- – uh, actually there's two scenes where uh, Doc is outside of the police station and is like uh, – 
one the first one he's going in and he like gets bumped into by a cop who just keeps walking like as if he's not even there and then there's a second scene later on in the movie where like there's just a kind of a chorus line of police officers walking and one of them in all in slow motion and they all like step over him as doc is like hunkered on the ground and i thought that was like just a one of the more clear points being made in the film, like visually and aesthetically. Yeah, it's yeah. true. There's a couple moments of police brutality that sort of played for comedy, and it's, it strangely works, like that slow motion scene where Josh Brolin is just jumping up and down on Joaquin Phoenix. And- yeah, and throwing him on the car. Yeah. yeah, and I also love that during, we see that image the same time where um, Joaquin Phoenix is just kind of limp and Josh Brolin's throwing him around. And I, if I remember correctly, a lot of the like monologue over that is about how Doc feels so bad for Josh Brolin's character. And that's kind of one of my main takeaways of this movie, which I think we can get into in, when we get into the what it all means. But yeah, it's definitely a, a, a movie of moments. And I think that the convolutedness of the plot, which is certainly something that almost every discussion of this movie is going to talk about, is you know hand in hand with the theme of like, well... That's kind of the point, right? It's the point, and it's been the point of a lot of noir mysteries over the years. My problem with this movie is not that the plot doesn't make sense. It's that it's that the way in which it doesn't make sense doesn't always call in these thematic concerns that we're talking about here. You know, I think right. so, there should be more of a sense at the end of the movie. Like, I don't know what that murder mystery is about, but I know what that movie was about. And I don't feel like I quite know what Inherent Vice is about. Yeah. Chris, since you mentioned the voiceover in the scene where uh, Bigfoot Bjornsson is, is wailing on Doc, I think we should mention the voiceover and how it's done in this movie. It's quite unusual. It's almost all directly, right, Aisha, from the, the Pynchon novel, yeah. obviously severely cut down. But there are a few words in the voiceover that don't appear almost the same in the book. And it's read by one of the characters in the movie, a minor character named Sortilege, great name, um, played by Joanna Newsom, the singer-songwriter and harpist. And it's a very unusual voiceover because it doesn't assume any authoritativeness of being outside the story. It doesn't get into any of the characters' heads, really, except in sort of an indirect way. It and has it's, its own weird uh, perspective, like vaguely hippie-ish perspective, where she keeps talking about, like, the bad astrological vibes that are going down and, like, maybe causing everything. But right, it, because she's a psychic. In the yeah. book, that's a little bit clearer because there's yeah. sort of scenes of them hanging out and talking together. But she's sort of like a tarot card reading psychic chick who's one of Doc's friends. And so it's a funny kind of unauthoritative, you know, untrustworthy narrator, but also very appealing. And she just has a great voice. She has yeah. a great crackly voice. I, the narration is as slack as the movie itself. Yeah. Which is a, a great compliment. And I, I also got the impression that, like, she wasn't, like she kind of represented this dazed, like, hallucinatory... Because a lot of the movie plays with the fact that in the book, there's a lot of times where, like... Doc is just too high. Like, he doesn't fully understand, like, what's going on. And Joaquin so, Phoenix plays that so, so well. well. And, and There's a moment when he answers the phone and doesn't say hello. And, and there's the joke is so subtle and so small. In the book, it's a little bit more pointed, right? That he, he says he forgot to say hello, right? Right, yeah. But, uh, but in the movie, you just kind of see his dazed face, like, why am I holding this thing in my hand? It's so good. Yeah, it's, it's just great. In her voiceover, because sometimes she does, like, directly address... Um, Doc, in a way, like she's kind of his subconscious in terms of like she might say, oh, Doc, like Bigfoot definitely set you up for this. Um, and sometimes in certain scenes, you can't tell if she's actually because you also see her not only in voiceover narration on her own, but you also see her sometimes in a scene with Joaquin Phoenix. Not quite enough, I think. I think she should have been a bigger character in order to make her <clears throat> voiceover make sense, because the first time I saw it, it took me about half of the movie to figure out that that character was the one doing the voiceover. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, maybe. I, 
I guess I kind of got it. I mean, she, whenever she shows up, it's not clear if she's actually there, though. Like, when she's in the car talking to him sometimes, like, it'll start with her voiceover narration, and then all of a sudden you see her sitting next to him in the car. But, like, I don't know if he ever actually acknowledges her. Like, interesting. Yeah, oh, interesting. I guess you could float the theory that she's a figment of his imagination. I guess. I don't know if there's enough... I don't really see enough textual information in this to movie to assume that anything is actually hallucinated or not existing in the reality of the movie, I guess. I usually, if that is true in a movie, I feel like there needs to be some kind of definitive Well, to Anderson's credit, he does not do any of the uh, the classic 60s um, psychedelic drug sequences or kind of drug trips real. There right. is that moment that um, that Doc is watching TV and he sees Bigfoot doing a commercial yeah. because one of Bigfoot's sidelines is to play a cop on TV and, uh, and he addresses him directly. So that does seem to be maybe a drug-induced hallucination moment, but it's not something the movie plays with a lot. So I, I agree with you guys that Joaquin Phoenix does a good job of, of capturing that like stony disconnectedness. Without making it into a passive, boring character, right? Yeah. I mean, he's really a hero you're invested in. But that's also something I kind of had difficulty wrapping my mind about because at the same time, he brings his usual Joaquin Phoenixy intensity to it. So this isn't somebody, even though he's in a cloud, he has his kind of own kind of focus and intent. He's not Jeff Spicoli, you know? No. He's not a spaced out happy dude. Yeah. But it made me, it made it difficult for me to track that character's motivation, which is something I've been thinking about a lot because I've been trying to work on this video piece about the intersection in movies between stoners and noir detectives and how my main theory is about it's a it's really a question of motivation that noir detectives become solely defined by the case that they're working on and kind of end up doggedly hunting down things against, you know, even their own well well being, whereas like your classic Lebowski esque character doesn't have the defined. focus to follow that story. And is more defined by trying to, like, escape danger and... And get into as little trouble as possible. possible. And Which is that, a classic noir thing, the yeah. isolationist, right? I mean, there was always during the war, like, this kind of isolationist reading mm-hmm. of, of Humphrey Bogart movies and things yeah. like that. The guy who doesn't want to get involved. Yeah. But, which makes this movie kind of hard for me to parse because I can't quite figure out what Doc's passion is here. I mean, the tagline of the movie is something... I mean, there's, like, a line that they keep putting out with it that's, like... Sometimes love is dangerous or love me. It's they like specifically say love in the, one of the taglines they're pushing for this movie. Oh, but don't judge the movie by the tagline. No, Whoever wrote it probably didn't see the movie. But that's what, oh, obviously that that's uh, the thinnest, tiniest uh, interpretation of it. But when you look at it, it's like his main motivation throughout this entire thing is Shasta, who asks him for help at the beginning and throughout the first, you know, two-thirds of the movie, whenever he's seeing people, he's like, where's Shasta? I need to find Shasta. I'm doing this for Shasta, etc., etc. So you would come to believe that his whole goal in this entire movie is is to help this person, and thus it has something to do with true love or affection for him. But it's also equally stated throughout the movie that there's like no chance that they'll ever be together romantically, that their relationship is done and gone, it's looked back up only with kind of a bittersweet nostalgia. And we'll get to the very sort of disturbing, funny, weird sex scene between yeah. them at the end. And he continues plowing into this case, even against, you know, his own instincts for self-preservation or just like pure stoner laziness. So it was kind of hard for me to track exactly why he was such a passionate, aggressive, assertive detective in his stoner bubble that he's in. Is he, though? I mean, I don't know. I, I don't know. I would say he was 
passionate or aggressive. I mean, except maybe in his um, exchanges with Bigfoot, but that's because he and Bigfoot have this history of like, it's kind of like a Daffy Duck and Bugs Bunny, where it's just like one of them is always trying to outsmart the other. Um, I don't know what. But he pursues the case, I think, is what Chris is saying. Like he could easily wall himself off and just not follow any of these leads. And it is sort of about him putting on wigs and, you know, trying to break into the Criscillodon Institute and sort of going after the truth. I mean, to me, at least in the book, again, I think that Pynchon does a better job at establishing this maybe than the movie. But Joaquin Phoenix is so – his performance is so rich and powerful that I actually do get some of this, is that he sort of seems to be searching for meaning. You know, he seems to be a burned-out guy who's had his heart broken, who's sort of watching the world around him – I wouldn't say crumble, but sort of slowly disintegrate. Or maybe like turn while he stays in the same place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's, I mean, it's, it's somebody who's sort of watching the lifestyle that he's created kind of rot around him, right? And he's sort of searching for some truth and something good. And besides Shasta, his other sort of humanistic motivation, altruistic motivation, is to help the Harlingens get back together, right? Coy Harlingen, the Owen Wilson surf saxophonist character, and his wife Hope, who's played by Jenna Malone. And they have a baby together. They used to be junkies. That's another whole story we haven't gotten into. And so another part of what he's trying to do is to reunite that nuclear family. Family. Yes. And despite me saying that I had trouble tracking that motivation, like once I accepted it, it gave me a pretty clear read on like what this movie is about. I mean, but I'm feeling such affection for this movie as we talk about it, even though I was sort of disappointed in it. It's it's, it's a nice place to live while you're there. It's sort of a, it's a movie you inhabit, right? It's yeah. quite long, two and a half hours long. And as we were saying, it creates a very specific milieu and sense of mood. And even if you don't quite know what's going on or, or why it's going on, it's it's kind of a pleasant place to inhabit. So I wanted to hear, let's just shout out the, the good surprises first. Okay, I'll, st- I'll start with uh, two things I really liked, which I'm sure that you guys will agree with. Um, the very beginning of the movie, the whole opening sequence through the opening credits, uh, when the beat on that can song, Vitamin C, drops and the credits come on. Greatest music cue in the movie. Yeah, I agree. so great. Big can fan. I'll uh, throw in a little vitamin C under this uh, off their classic Ijibam Yasi. Um, yeah, that was a moment that when that music kicked in and the words inherent vice appear in neon and you sort of see Joaquin Phoenix having just said goodbye to Shasta after she laid out this case to him just ambling off into his hippie neighborhood. I was so excited about the movie to come. I just really thought this is going to this is going to have such a great syncopated just sort of like off kilter feeling, you know, and I guess it did con- continue to have that feeling, but I don't think it lived up to the promise of that. But, but yeah, that whole moment just got me so revved up for what was going to come in the movie. Uh, whether or not it totally played out the way I did. But yeah, it's a definitely like, oh, this is going to be great uh, music cue. And then the whole sequence at the end, which is another thing we haven't really talked about, where uh, he gets beaten up by the uh, Nazi guy and is handcuffed and is uh, drugged with, um, what does he have? With PCP. He is tricked into smoking a joint laced with PCP, uh, goes crazy, gets handcuffed by a Nazi who's going to give him a fatal overdose of uh, presumably heroin and he uh, manages to escape and defeat the Nazi and shoot Adrian Prussia spoiler obviously uh, and 
that whole sequence of capture and escape with the gangsters, I thought, was a great split the difference between action cop tension and silly stoner slapstick. Yeah, I agree. That was a well pulled off action sequence. And like very late in the movie when the movie had lost a lot of energy because the middle hour really does get to be some of the scenes are very good. But it's scene after scene after scene of a new character coming into Doc's office and or apartment and laying out some new, you know, crazy convoluted problem that he has to solve. And uh, and a lot of those characters never reappear. Right. The like, Michael K. Williams yeah. guy appears one time and disappears Tariq Khalil. That could have been an interesting road to go down. Um, Glenn Sharlock's sister appears at one point and uh, and does some laughing gas with Doc because we haven't mentioned that he rents a private eye office in a dentist's office and occasionally abuses the, the mask. Um, and she never reappears. And so that, to me, it really just did start to lose energy with the number of knock-knock, hey, Doc, I've got a story to tell you scenes. Yeah. Um, my personal favorite moment was probably when he's talking to what was her name Jean the the former drug addict Coy's wife mm-hmm. um, oh hope 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 and um she he, she shows her him the picture of her child who was born like addicted to heroin or whatever and he just has this moment where he looks at her and he's just like lets out this giant like pa sound like he just laughs very awkwardly laughs i thought that was like a scream maybe it was a scream it, it, it's it seems like a, a mixture of a scream and a and a laugh like a ah, i don't it's know it's a strange that is a very so, i mentioned in my review it's you, a very joaquin phoenix moment right you, it's yeah. one of those called a uh, maybe a barbaric yelp <laughs> sure. isn't it a yop barbaric yeah, yop. 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 yeah 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 it's a completely out of context sound for the scene in the social situation it's one of those joaquin phoenix choices like the master is full of them you yeah. know where you say like well why does he walk around all the time like holding the small of his back in the master it's some decision that joaquin phoenix made in his like methody madness of coming up with the part and you might not ever quite know what it means or why he he does it but it keeps you watching and the fact that you don't see the photo just adds that mystery to it because like you can only imagine what a heroin addicted baby Right. Will look like. Well, when, when I think about it, that also is a moment when you realize sort of um, Doc's moral investment in the case, right? I mean, it's sort of the strongest emotional reaction he has to anything throughout the whole movie because he's such a kind of a low, low energy stoner all the time, right? So mm-hmm. the moment that he sees this crack addicted baby in a photo that we don't see, you know, you can only imagine how awful it must have been to, to get him that brought up. Yeah. One of the things I kept looking for is I remember when this movie went into production, there was like a set photo that le- leaked that was a. Uh, supposedly like 500 feet of dolly track that Paul Thomas Anderson had laid down. So I kept waiting for this epic tracking shot that I feel like I never... He tones it down. I mean, he uses it a lot. Quite saw, yeah. But it's usually in like still scenes. Yeah, I feel like there was less. I mean, the the camera, the the three, two, one, the production design and cinematography looked completely gorgeous, but there wasn't the kind of a camera choreography that you sometimes see in his movies. There were quite a lot of long conversational takes, which, you know, always require a lot from the actors. Like that whole big scene between Owen Wilson and Joaquin Phoenix where he lays out, you know, the Golden Fang scenario is all one long take. Yeah. yeah. Actually, I feel like every scene he has where he's investigating a client, it's there's a long take. The one with Michael K. Williams is Tariq. The one with... Uh, What's her name? There's no cuts in the Tariq scene. There, I, th- I think there might be one, but like, there's a like when it starts for the first like two minutes or so. I think it, like it's slowly just you can't really tell. It's so subtle, but you can. It's slowly moving in on Tariq, telling him like this what he's there for, and then it cuts between. But like, it's a long, it's a long take. 
I think I'm going to say for my moment, I mean, really, it's just it's not any one moment. It is the whole ambient look of the film and sound of it that, that I respond to and that I remember fondly. But I think a moment that's quite bold is the sex scene at the end with Shasta Faye when she she comes back, um, you know, after the case has been as solved as it's going to get. Right. It's after the Harlingens have been reunited and the Golden Fang has been more or less exposed. And she comes back to his apartment and then they have this strange sexual encounter that's somewhere in between sort of sadomasochism and teasing. And uh, and then it's followed by her saying, this doesn't mean we're back together. And it's just this really terrible sort of empty sex scene. And uh, and it just seemed like I really admire when a filmmaker will take a scene like that, you know, two naked people getting it on, attractive actors, and turn it into something besides, you know, sort of very soft core porn. I mean, well, she it, was the only one who was naked in that scene. Oh, yeah, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> like, she was completely naked and he, like, you never see him. Like, he's clothed and then once they do their thing for, like, probably five seconds. Right. All, you, don't, you don't see it. He just, like, pulls down his pants just enough so that you can't see it. You're right. You're right. He's, no, he is dressed the whole time. But, I mean, my point kind of stands that it's just, like, it's, it's, it's bad sex that means something, right? It's bad sex that sort of advances not just the story but I think in some ways the sort of theme of, of malaise, you know, mm. and of kind of displacement. Detachment. And uh, and it's a, it's a sad, sad ending to the movie. It's not the very end. You know, something I wanted to bring up before we close is that Maya Rudolph is in this movie, Paul Thomas Anderson's wife, and obviously the former SNL comedian who is so well-suited to this kind of movie. I mean, she's she sort of both has chops as a dramatic actress and a comic one. And, you know, she just sort of, I think she would get the sensibility and be an amazing performer in this movie, but she barely gets to do anything. And that really drove me crazy. She plays Petunia Leeway, who is the wonderfully named... Uh, Assistant secretary, she sort of runs the whole dental office, I guess, the receptionist of the dental office where Doc rents his office. And she literally has like six lines or something. She sits behind a desk the entire time, and it just seemed like such a waste. Granted, she was pregnant with their fourth child when the movie was made, so maybe it was limited sort of how much mobility she had or how much time she wanted to spend on set. But she could easily have played, for example, one of the prostitutes at the Chick Massage Planet place. You know, she could have brought so much more of her kind of body, crazy sense of humor to this. And that really disappointed me that he didn't use her a little bit more. Wouldn't that have made her a pregnant prostitute? <laughs> but that, that could have been great. I mean, she could have been behind the counter at, at Chick Planet or something. Chick Planet is a bit of a bigger part of the book. And there's these two great characters, Jade and Bambi, to the, the two kind of lingus-obsessed prostitutes who kind of ride around with Doc. And that, that got shortened down to just the Jade character who's not in the movie that much. And as long as we're mentioning this huge, sprawling cast of characters with fun-to-say names, I have to say the funnest of all name to say, which is Sancho Smilax, the name of the uh, attorney, the unpaid attorney to Doc Sportello, who's played by Benicio Del Toro. Great character. He's not quite in it enough, but uh, he speaks the PTA dialogue so perfectly, or the pension dialogue. He's someone that Paul Thomas Anderson should use more. Yeah, and he had that great moment where Bigfoot is accusing him like, and your specialty is boat law? It's like... Hey, there's a lot of crime on the high seas. But it's it's funny to see him do this character, which is a very different character, but still a same vaguely countercultural lawyer to a st- unstable stoner protagonist as he played in Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, which I think is a very narratively and thematically simpatico movie with this. Oh, see, I haven't seen that movie. Yeah, it's – I mean, it's great. You should see it. I'm actually kind of stunned that you haven't. Um, I have many, many holes. In yeah, but it, it like sits in that same realm of a a film about a devoted '60s counterculturalist kind of ruminating on on what happened to that era from a very early '70s perspective. Right, and it's it's a similar. I think 
It's based on a Hunter S. Thompson novel, right? And it mm. seems like Hunter S. Thompson in his journalism and in his fiction was really interested in that exact, exploring that exact same moment of the curdling of the counterculture, sort of what Joan Didion writes about in her essays on California, this moment when dreams of hippie freedom started to turn into, you know, just grim scenarios of addiction and kind of enslavement. Yeah, I found myself at one point in this wondering if Hunter Thompson and um, Doc Sportello would be buddies if they met. I mean, Thompson is such a, 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 a kind of inscrutable character in some ways that you don't really know what he would think about anybody. But it, it seems like, you know, they could have hung out at the same parties. Yeah, one introvert and one extrovert, right? <laughs> I mean, I think that the Doc character is way more inward and might just sort of want to lock his door against all comers. But they have something in common spiritually. Oh, one other thing I wanted to shout out, just because we haven't mentioned it at all, and it was pretty great, was um, his kind of mini adventure with Martin Short as a, a coked up dentist. Yeah. Uh, just driving around and there was a funny scene where they get pulled over and the cop is like. <laughs> three is a cult. <laughs> yeah. three. We have to pull over anybody with any car with three or more people in it because <laughs> three people or more is a cult. And also anybody with hair past their ears, which like everybody in the car does. Um, it was just a funny scene and a funny performance from Martin Short. That is like a third mystery about Japonica, who was somebody that disappeared. Oh, yeah, Japonica Fenway. I mean, to me, that was a a funny scene of them driving around in a great little sort of freestanding set piece. But it was kind of poorly integrated into the rest of the movie. I mean, I'm I'm trying to think about what that has to do with anything. Well, then later on, he meets her father. Yeah, who has something to do with the Chrysler Institute, maybe? (sighs) Yeah, I mean, her parents are among, they're among the rich people that are pulling the strings behind the Golden Fang, but we never quite learn, you know, how they're all connected. All right, do you all have any final thoughts about what this movie does want to mean or be or try to make us come away with? Well, I think um, what you said earlier about how you didn't want it to be this ponderous, like, how we live now. How we live now. And I I agree with you. Um, I think the reason, though, why it didn't work for me was that not so much that it didn't have a plot. Um, that doesn't matter, obviously. There have been plenty of great movies that don't have plots that work. I think the problem is that, like, the characters in the end, as you mentioned earlier, they some of them just drop in and never return again. And the connection, even though in the moment it might be a fun moment to experience as a viewer, like, it doesn't necessarily – they don't all come together. Like, not that the plot doesn't come together, but, like – their relationships to one another don't always come through clearly to me, um, especially um, the 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 woman who comes in about her brother with the laughing gas scene. Clancy just, Sherlock. Yeah, it was just like I don't uh, I don't understand like what this has to do with everything. Um, so I think for me the the meaning, if if you want to try and parse out a meaning to come out of this, um, is just kind of a sort of paranoia nostalgia of like um lamenting the the loss of of this kind of counterculture that they've created and and um but at the same time kind of uh what's the word for um begrudgingly lamenting the the loss of this counterculture but also accepting it in a kind of begrudging way, the way that Doc does. Um, and I don't know if we want to talk at all about the end, like the very final scene. I'm not sure what to make of the final scene. Oh, it's, yeah. It's we very, can't spoil without talking about the very, very final scene. It's very different from the way the book ends. So, oh, so you haven't finished the book yet. So, yeah. all right, fill us in. Okay. So the book ends more or less in a similar fashion in terms of he's in a car driving. Um, 
And, like, you know, in the final scene, he's driving and, like, um, not Chaponica, um Shasta is next to him. I think she has her head on his shoulder. Um, and he's kind of, like, driving and looking. It's, like, really foggy. It, it just looks like a very fake set. And he, like, there's one moment where he, like, glares at the at the screen, like, glares directly at the audience in this kind of knowing way. And then, like, it just ends. Um, and in the book, he's driving. But, like, the book goes off on this, like, whole it, – it, like, tries to answer the question of, like, what does this all mean in terms of – first of all, Shasta's not in the car. Um, he's by himself and he's driving on the highway um, and he's, like – it's foggy. He can't see. So kind of similar to the movie. But um, the book asks these questions like, well, the internet might be coming soon. Like, I, you're, we're able to – you know, we might be able to – like meet someone or like have an alumni association for someone we met on the highway or whatever. As all these other – like brings up all this stuff about like how the t- – it's basically like the times they are changing in a way. Like, right. And it's a book that was written in 2009 about 1970, right? So it is right. a book that, that contains a lot of thinking about now. And I'm not sure that that thinking about now translates to the movie. Right. Exactly. I feel like the ending with having Shasta in the car with him – uh, you could interpret it any number of ways. You could interpret it as she's not really there, and he, this is just like this is what like what he always hoped for, but it's not happening because we all know it's not happening. Or you could interpret it as like um, she is there. I, I don't know why that would make sense, but I, I feel like it kind of turns turns the the whole point of the movie into being about Shasta and his love for Shasta, whereas the book, the way it ends, does not do that. So it took me uh, a little bit to wrap my head about what I think that this movie was trying to tell me. And I agree that it, in the end, a lot of what it's doing is a very uh, fear and loathing-esque examination of entering the 70s from the 60s as like a diehard counterculturalist and musing on what is lost. But I think more specifically, I read the main thrust of this story as being a story of Doc and Bigfoot's mutual dependency as both, you know, it's a love-hate, um, you know, just as you were saying, Daffy Duck um, and Bugs Bunny, or also like the Joker and Batman, that their adversarial nature comes to define them as they both feel the world slipping from a way in which one was the G-Man and one was the hippie and they both had their defined roles within and without culture. And entering the 70s, there was increasingly to both of them more of a cultural middle ground that had been achieved and their roles are diminishing. And it's about their two different responses to their loss of control or place about Bigfoot kind of becoming angry and self-loathing at this increased loss of his Oh, place. talk about eating the, ash- the yeah, ashes. Exactly. exactly. Oh, yeah. He senses that that his his space of his G-Man status is, is diminishing a little bit, and that turns into a, a sense of self-loathing at his own impotency, his wife yelling at him all the time, which then he takes out in a, tr- in a kind of spite and rage on his enemy, Doc. And eventually... Not being able to control anyone else, including Doc himself, not being able to resort to his classic defense mechanism of busting hippie skulls, uh, he eventually ends up broken. And at the very end of the scene, the last time we see him, he's kind of totally unhinged, manic, 
kicks down Doc's door, to which Doc has, you know, zero reaction. His violence can no longer really affect Doc at all. He picks up a giant tray of ashes and just pours it into his mouth and just eats these these ashes, like consuming Doc's own waste in a way, and then just leaves. Whereas at the same time, as they're kind of circling each other over these series of cases that they're given, Doc's response is to invest in something that he can change or affect, which is Koi's freedom, which becomes, towards the end of the movie, more than reuniting with Shasta, which turns out to be a bitter fruit once he tastes it. Uh, his ability to actually salvage somebody's life and a, a family's life by freeing Koi from his uh, agent provocateur status and giving him his identity back allows him to actually invest in a in a better world of two former counterculturalists gone slightly square by kind of buying into that new cultural middle ground. And that is his real redemption. And that like they're reuniting and the freeing of Koi is like, you know, the last 90 seconds of the movie, something like that. It's like very, very end. So that's where I felt like the real resolve was, is these two opposing forces of fighting each other to the bitter end of this new world that they both find themselves in. And one, bashing his head in the wall enough to burn out while the other finds an escape route through helping other people. Right. Yeah, that's a stunning reading, Chris. That's like way clearer than anything the movie yeah. itself comes up with. Yeah. And I think you're right that the central relationship in the movie is between Bigfoot and, and Doc, but I'm not sure that the movie knows that and values that enough. And maybe that makes it even better that the movie is so stoned out on itself that it can't really tell what it's trying to say. Well, it's a movie that makes you feel stoned. You know, that's something that it really accomplishes is that it, it creates this kind of state of low-level fog and you don't know quite what logical connections to pursue or where to put your attention and focus. And I think that's probably all deliberate on Anderson's part. But 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 in order for it not to just disperse out into the ether so that it ends and we just sort of feel like it's so diffuse that I don't know what experience I had, I think there needs to be one central relationship that animates. And I think it probably should have been that one and is that one to the extent that you know, it's, it's, it's a really interesting connection. But the movie doesn't necessarily form itself around it. As for the last scene where he's driving, I haven't finished the book yet, so I, I won't, wasn't able to compare them. But it sort of reminded me of the last scene of The Graduate in a way, just mm. in the sense that it was about getting what you think you want and then driving on into the next phase of your life and, and then maybe sort of starting to experience your alienation from your own choices. Nice. Yeah, I like that reading. And I liked the ending of the movie. I mean, I, I really liked almost every minute of this movie taken minute for minute. But somehow it never did really turn into a collection of, you know, 150 minutes that I love. It, yeah, I enjoyed the movie, and it, but it did feel like a bit of an endurance test by the very end in a way that The Master, which is even longer and slower, possibly, yeah. Yeah. didn't feel like to me. I was completely entranced by The Master all the way through. Um, but I have enjoyed thinking about this movie, I think, more. Yeah, and, and put it this way. I mean, it's not like, even if, even people who might be disappointed and say, this is not my favorite or this is my least favorite Paul Thomas Anderson movie, I mean, it's not like he sold out. You know, it's not like mm -hmm. he went and made, like, you know, robo-transformers or something. I mean, he adapted a very difficult novel into a very strange and distinctive and kind of beautiful movie. So even if it didn't completely flow for me, I, I kind of respect him for that. And it is nice. I'm, like, very thankful as a fan of his work to that he chose a project that kind of backed off of the like increasingly heavy uh, path that he'd been going down from, you know, Magnolia to uh, There Will Be Blood to The Master, which is just like it's kind of an unrelentingly and, heavy. And Punch Drunk Love, too. Like, that's one I haven't seen, which I'm sure is great. Yeah, it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty heavy, I think. 
Yeah. Not as heavy as like the master, but I mean, I think he's actually at his best when he combines ensemble comedy with, you know, darker themes like Boogie Nights. Yeah. Right. Yeah. All right. Well, guys, thanks so much for helping me puzzle through the crazy, tangled mass of stuff that is Inherent Vice. Um, actually, ending this, I sort of want to go see it again now with the Chris Wade interpretation in my mind. Great. Everybody should go see it with that interpretation. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So thanks a lot, Aisha. Thanks, Dana. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Dana. Our producer is Chris Wade. The managing producer of Slate Podcasts is Joel Meyer. And the executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Andy Bowers. For Slate.com, I'm Dana Stevens. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.